What's up everyone? This is your host Rafael Matuszewski and I got another great compilation episode with two guests that I had in my first year of podcasting. I am bringing two specific ones because these two are nutrition focused, fat loss based, and they're kind of on opposite spectrums. And I thought these two would complement really, really well uh, for this episode because the first person I'm interviewing that you're going to hear is Georgie Fear. And she is a nutritionist that believes on more, you know, lifestyle change, habit based nutrition, things that will, you know, stick over time. And the other person that I have, um, Jason Phillips, who's another nutrition coach entrepreneur and overall just badass individual he's more on the side of you know he's gone through his own uh journey where he was anorexic and had um different eating disorders because he was in that kind of realm of fitness where you know dieting was normal dieting every single day dieting basically your entire life and he tends to look on the side of you know that bodybuilding, getting on a stage, looking your best, counting your macros. So we have kind of like a double-edged sword in this episode where we're going to look at both sides of the story. Because again, we all know that nutrition, oh, there's so much to it in the sense that there's so many ways to get to your goal. And you know, if you're the average Joe, maybe Georgie Fear is the type of person you want to listen to because it's all about lifestyle change because you know if you're the average person you probably have a couple of kids a mortgage job that's stress and other time commitments and then Jason Phillips maybe you're at a point where you're like so in tune with your training that you need a little bit more of an aggressive approach a little bit more detail maybe you are you know a gym bro looking to get leaner but regardless of who you are it's kind of interesting to see and hear both of these people talk in a different way to get you to goal so you know my show i've interviewed so many different people and these two particular you won't be able to access these episodes and i'm so freaking pissed about spotify and you know apple music or itunes or whatever the hell it is called nowadays doesn't allow you to go past episode 70 so i'm going to start bringing these episodes back when um you know if something really pops up on my radar that i think right now at this moment you guys need so i'm going to stop rambling here is georgie fear and jason 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 phillips Welcome everyone back to another episode of Cut the Shit, Get Fit. We have another awesome guest today for you guys. Her name is Georgie Fear. She is a dietitian and the author of Lean Habits. Say hello. Hi, pleased to uh, be here and nice to meet your guests and see you again, Rafal. Perfect. So to start us off, can you just tell us who you are, what you do and kind of go from there? Yeah. Uh, so my name is Georgie Fear. As you said, I'm a registered dietitian and a CSSD, which is an acronym nobody knows. That means <laughs> I have a board uh, certification in sports nutrition. Um, 
let's see, what do I do? I do nutrition coaching. That's, that's my gig. And I do it uh, all online, which is kind of a unique niche. I, I, like most people, I started out working with people individually. Um, I worked in hospitals doing nutrition and I've worked in gyms and worked in a bariatric surgery clinic. So various, you know, medical as well as kind of, you know, non-clinical applications. Um, and I really settled on just working with general population and people that wanted to, like you said, get fit and improve their health more than people that were sick. I just, I love, I love Joe and Jane average. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, I'm, I'm super uh, interested in why people eat what they eat. So I definitely have a high psychological bent to my, um, you know, kind of focus on it. And I, I don't do anything alone. I, um, so I, I co-own One by One Nutrition together with my husband, Roland. And we also have a partner, Josh Hillis. And um, so the three of us are kind of you know, trying to change the industry to make nutrition coaching more effective, more kind, uh, and you know, more accessible to people that have... Like, everybody that's failed diets we want them. We, we want them to succeed because we know it's possible. So, and we have some great coaches that work for us. So yeah. So we're just a, a little, little army on the internet coaching people. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, so the next thing I was going to ask you is kind of diving into your book and I love your book, by the way, like the moment I got it, I think I read it within a day cause it's just one thing after another. I just found it interesting and Thank I kind of, no problem. Uh, so I really liked how, you had all these habits list listed down from like one to 16, I believe. But the first four, like, I think you call them your core habits. Why are those the core habits and not like anything else? The, uh, well, as we all know, there's, there's so many moving parts to having what we would call, you know, quote, good nutrition or a diet and lifestyle that are going to get you the body you want. It's not, it's not one thing. It's not a single thing factor ever so the complexity of it can can be most people's downfall you know they try and there's so much information out there and they figure oh i need to eat more protein and less candy and i should watch the beer but drink more water and i need to get more sleep and nobody knows where to prioritize any of this and there's no like you know life project manager that comes in and is like this is the most important thing to do first let's let's start there so that's kind of um you know why i feel that a structure is needed. And if you do the big stuff first, you're less likely to spin your wheels than if you start trying to fix all the details, but then you have this like big, you know, rock that's holding you back. So, so the core four uh, habits in the book are to eat three or four times a day and not snack between meals or eat lots of mini meals. Um, and that's one that I'm sure we'll come back to because that's generally the most surprising one for people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, another one is to feel hungry for 30 to 60 minutes before you eat. Again, this is a fat loss specific kind of uh, specification on that one. And we, we do modify it for people that want to build muscle or let's say they're pregnant. Um, and weight loss is not the prime goal. But for most people, it is fat loss. And 30 to 60 minutes of hunger before you eat each time is a nice, simple way to get into uh, a sustainable calorie deficit without drastically underfeeding yourself. Yeah. Um, a third one of the core four is uh, what we call eating just enough. And that's essentially stopping when you're satisfied and have had, you know, just enough food so that you're going to get to your next meal, feeling that 30 to 60 minutes of hunger, um, but not stuffing yourself to where you're 
where you're uncomfortable or you won't be hungry for your next meal. So, um, that is in my opinion, probably one of the toughest things for most people out of the core for us to really get that eating just enough. And then the fourth one is to eat mostly whole foods. Cause as we all know, even if you practice only eating when you're hungry and you stop when you're satisfied and don't eat until you're stuffed, if your diet consists of, you know, pop tarts and Pepsi, <laughs> then you can still get, it's going to take a lot of calories to get satisfied. So, uh, so just to help the natural mechanisms work in their best way, we want to make sure our diet's mostly unprocessed foods. And most is really important. It's not about hundred percent processed foods, just most of your, most of your plate, uh, a little chocolate and a muffin here and there certainly feds. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so let's kind of go back to the habit number one with the three and four meals, because I think a lot of people now, when they hear that, they're like, oh, I thought I was supposed to eat every three hours, at least six meals a day. So yeah. what's the science behind that and what's the benefit? Sure. And the first thing to say is like when I was uncovering that research, I did not like it <laughs> yeah. because I was eating six times a day and I like eating. And anyone telling me that you need to eat less frequently was like, no, say it ain't so. Um but it turns out that small, frequent meals work really well for getting more calories into somebody that's, um, you know, losing weight to try and promote a higher calorie intake. And that was always a bit of a head scratcher for me as a dietitian because we hear, you know, when you have, you know, patients that are wasting away and you're trying to promote weight gain, you know, promote feeding every few hours because then they won't get too full and they'll get more calories in than if they try and eat three square meals. And I'm like, and then I hear all these fat loss people saying. Well, eat six times a day because you'll eat less. And it's like, this doesn't match somewhere. And so, you know, Roland and I uh, were kind of looking at this question together and there has to be some sort of data on it. So 2012 was like the year of research of this question. And we started to pull out, um, you know, my background in research, I did everything but the dissertation of a PhD. So I'm like five years of school, no PhD, (laughs) (laughs) lots of term bills, no paper at the end. Um, so I have quite a research background in the, the brain mechanisms that control energy intake. So I started going back through the papers that I had and the, the research sources that I know and, you know, looking like, what does the science say? If I put aside my own bias toward wanting to eat often (laughs) and it actually seems that when um, we eat more substantial meals and therefore have more hours between them, over the course of the day, it ends up resulting in less hunger at the same calorie intake. So if somebody's like, if you have two groups of people and they're controlling total calories in, like we're only giving you people 1800 calories, no matter how much you cream and scry, your own uh, cry and scream, (laughs) you're only getting 1800 calories. And you ask them to rate their hunger and fullness cues throughout the day. If you give them to one group in, you know, three meals and the other one, you give them 12 little meals, the group that actually gets fed 12 tiny little meals suffers from more hunger throughout the day because they're not getting completely satisfied. Their hunger never gets turned completely off. And, you know, that's not once that's a, you know, just my example of several types of studies kind of lumped together. That's not one study. Um, and it seems that somewhere around the 400 calorie mark, we're beginning to really get the full benefit from all of our appetite cues. So, um, so yeah, it, it takes meals of a certain size, and I don't get into macros too much in that quest in that first chapter because now you got to stay focused. Yeah. But part of the reason behind that is because there's, you know, 
many hormones that lead to satiety and many gut peptides. And you, they tend to be triggered by separate macronutrients. So if you want to get all of you know, this category, you need to get enough protein. And then if you want to get enough of this signaling going, you need to get enough fat. And if you want to get enough of this signaling from insulin and the glucose sensing neurons in your hypothalamus, then you need to get enough carbohydrates. And then there's the walls of your stomach, which they have pressured stretch receptors. And so they want to trigger a certain volume. So if you make meals that are too small, you just can't hit all of those pathways. So it's, does that, does that paint a kind of clear picture? Or am I just... No, no, definitely. Babbling idiot here. <laughs> no, no, no. That was really good. Um, I think also it's like if people were used to the whole like five to six meals a day and like their snack is an apple and a handful of almonds and you look down at it and you're like, man, this is kind of depressing. I wish I could eat more. Yeah. And I think it's almost like when they look at that, they're higher chance to like, you know what, I'm going to have some more. And then you have, you know, a surplus of calories and they're like, oh, why am I not losing weight? <laughs> I know. And it's, it's so frustrating as an individual when you're, cause it takes work. Like, you know, nobody's eating six small meals a day because it's like easy, yeah. right? Like it takes mental focus and restraint to be like, I'm going to manage my meal size. I'm not, you're essentially fighting your biology to not eat a full meal. And like every woman that's dieted <laughs> done that is, is, is very aware. Like I want to eat when I'm like, you know, wiping the inside of my yogurt container. Like I want more. <laughs> I'm fighting that to get dinner. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so letting yourself be like, you know, you can actually eat more. And like, when you get that satisfied feeling, you're not going to feel like you're in hunger purgatory or where, you know, you're a little bit crazy because I think a lot of women, uh, I characterize women because I know them the best, but men are not immune to this by any means. <laughs> Um, you start to feel like there's, you have a screw loose because you're like finishing one meal and thinking about the next one already. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> it's like, no, it's not you. That's your biology. And amazing things happen when I made the kind of gradual, reluctant tail dragging, uh, transition <laughs> in eating more space between them. I was amazed how much the rest of my life opened up because I didn't have food on the brain all the time between meals. Cause when you actually get satisfied, your brain goes off to other things. You start thinking about like, where do I want to travel? What do I want to do today? Uh, you know, you just, you, you have more of yourself to give to your relationships and your job and your family when you're not like how many minutes until I can, you know, open that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Yeah, like for myself, like when I started intermittent fasting, that was a big one because now I didn't have to worry about waking up extra early, getting my breakfast in, and then like starving until three hours after to like chug a shake down. And I'm like, oh, when's lunch going to come? Totally. And then, yeah. And then the moment I uh, switched over to the whole, I think I was doing 16 and 8, where I had a 16-hour window of fasting and an 8-hour window of eating, and I'd split it up into three meals. I was like, this is a lot better than always looking at my watch, hoping for my next meal to be already here. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So are you still doing uh, intermittent fasting and how are you liking it? Uh, so I remember reading about it probably like now, maybe three or four years ago. And I was like, you know what? I got to give it a try. And I told myself I would probably do it just for a month to see what all the fuss was about. Yeah. And then ever since then, I've never gone back because it was like, this is so much easier. I wake up, have some coffee, go to work, and then just worry about lunch. And then it's a bigger meal, and I feel awesome, full, and don't have to worry about anything else. That's awesome. Have you, um, did you have any goals like 
were you trying to gain mass or get stronger or lose fat or, or do anything there? Or was it simply about like, oh, this is seemingly an easier way? Um, well, it was just more of an experiment. And then um, I did notice that my weight did not fluctuate as much as it did. And then I was like thinking to myself, I'm like, this is like a bulletproof way of not eating like over your calorie count because to a point, like you only have eight hours to eat. So you can't really gorge yourself that much. Right. Right. Well, some people manage to (laughs) manage to like, it's, it's pretty amazing. Like how much, uh, you know, coconut oil based treats, uh, a paleo eater can eat in a short period of time. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. But, uh, yeah, I hear you. Like if you have, if you're trying to stick to whole foods, then, you know, some of your stomach real estate is taken up by vegetables. Then, uh, yeah, there's, there's a natural kind of regulatory mechanism in there. Definitely. And I think that kind of goes into your next habit of like mastering your hunger. Cause I remember when I first started, I think the first two weeks, those mornings were kind of tough, like stomach growling, but eventually it just got easier and easier. And then I didn't get hungry until, you know, 12 o'clock was my first meal. And right on the dot, I would always get hungry around that time. Yeah, isn't that cool how your body adjusts? Yeah, it's pretty sweet. And um, I think, like, for most people, when they see, like, the three or four meals, like, how how many hours in between would that be, like, four or five, like, depending on the person's day? I typically say four to six. Okay. Um, and it depends, of course, on if you're doing three meals or four meals. Yeah. Like, some people find that three feels best for them. Some people find that four feels best for them. There's no superiority you know, I think sometimes people think it's a contest of like who can eat the fewest meals. That is not, 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 not the goal. Um, it also tends to, there's some individuality in there in terms of if somebody is like a, like really and truly loves low calorie density foods. Like I love vegetables. Even yeah. as a kid, I loved vegetables. Um, if I fill up on a lot of vegetables, I'm probably going to need four meals just because they're lower calorie density. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas if somebody's like, you know, I really appreciate the being able to eat more fat or more calorie dense foods, more red meats, then they may find that it just works out fine for them on three meals because you know their their hunger cues adjust and when they eat till satisfied, it just works out to be three. So, um, I was gonna ask, like, what's kind of your tips or tricks trying to master the whole like hunger shift when you're say you're gonna try doing a three to four meals, like. What should they be focusing on? Maybe they're not eating a certain amount of food that's not kind of getting them over to the next hump. Sure. Um, Well, a lot of times with everything, my recommendation is to take it slow. Like if you're eating seven times a day, go to six. Like you don't have to jump to three or four. I'm very much like a timid (laughs) one small step at a time. I describe myself in the book as the type of person that takes an hour to get into a swimming pool (laughs) because I want to get in like one inch at a time. Um, So there's no need to to just like dive in, especially if somebody's having head games, like I'm afraid of getting hungry or I anticipate getting hungry is going to be really, really unpleasant. And they're feeling upset by that. You know, that's, that's very real. That's something to work with and not push through. So um, if somebody, it, it all, it matters where somebody's beginning. So let's say somebody's currently uh, addressing hunger the instant they feel it, or they're preventing hunger by, you know, just eating on the schedule, eating snacks, you know, I never leave the house without three bars in my purse, that type of thing. Then just feeling hunger for a few minutes and just letting it be there is light years different 
than approaching hunger like it's a flesh-eating virus yeah. that like must be eliminated the second you find it. So for me personally, and I find for a lot of my clients, it's, it's really just framing hunger differently in your mind um, as something that's healthy. It's a perfectly normal, healthy sensation to feel hunger just the same as it is to get thirsty, feel sleepy, or feel like you have to use the restroom. Just, com- just completely normal. But uh, to many people, me included, hunger was like this set apart demon danger signal. <laughs> and, you know, I, I come from a background that has been impacted by disordered eating. And I think a lot of women that have either been through that or they've just uh, you know, done too many diets and they've had too many bad experiences of being hungry for hour after hour, you start to hate it because you've had too much of it. And it's a bit of a relearning experience to realize, oh, okay, so what was bad was going hungry for hour after hour after hour after hour and my hair falling out and feeling weak. This is different. This is like 30 minutes of feeling a sensation in my stomach. It's, it's safe. It's healthy. It's okay. Um, so kind of just de-alarming yourself. Um, and then with that, once somebody's like, okay, I can feel five minutes of hunger and stay calm then just it kind of naturally progresses from there. And the most awesome thing that's really surprising to everybody is that the people who hate hunger often start to find that they like hunger, not to the level that they're going to, you know, underfeed themselves or starve themselves, uh, but to the level where they find it's reassuring. Because if you start out and hunger's freaking you out, it's often because it feels like it's like you're at risk or it's not safe, you know, we like the safety and assurance of getting rid of it. But when you start to realize that having your hunger show up like nice and repeatable, like 12 noon, you know, before lunch, you start to feel that hunger, that starts to become a reassuring pattern that clues you in. You're not eating too much. You're eating appropriately. Your body is, you know, you're, you're doing what your body needs to attain its healthiest body weight and rock on. So it starts to feel really good when you get hungry. Yeah. I think a lot of people look at hunger as like a panic mode, yeah. but you know, I got to tell people like a good idea is just play detective with your body. Like write down what time you got hungry and kind of see where it leads to. And then the same thing the next day and you kind of kind of find a pattern and it just kind of exploring your body of how it's changing over time. Yeah, that, that's a great way to do it. Um, and what I like about the, the writing down what time you got hungry and noticing it is when you keep a log like that, you start to get data that you didn't um, notice when you were just kind of going about your day. And what I mean by that is we tend to not notice the hours we aren't feeling hungry, but we notice the hours that we are feeling hungry. Therefore, it's easy to look back over the day and say, I have been hungry all of the time, or I've been hungry 75% of my waking hours. When you actually write it down, it's like, oh, Maybe it was only an hour or two here and there, and I didn't really realize that from three or four, I didn't even know, you know, notice any hunger. Definitely. So, yeah. Um, kind of jumping into your next habit of just eating enough, what are your like recommendations for like portion sizes and things like that? It's amazing how different people's needs are, which makes this incredibly, <laughs> incredibly difficult. So the way I, the lowest tech way to describe it is to use the kind of bell-shaped graph that's in the book, which is like the only figure in the book. Um, and basically, if you, if you picture your fullness when you're eating as something like a hill where 
at the beginning, you don't feel that good and you start to feel better and better and better. And the line goes up as you eat. And then at some point you feel pretty darn good. And if you keep eating, you start to feel worse because you start to feel overfull and a little bit of pain. And oh, now I want to unbutton my pants and <laughs> you start to, the line comes back down. You're starting to feel less good. I usually just tell people, can you land on top of the hill? And it's, a, it's round. There's a lot of room up there. So you don't have to hit like one specific bite that's like, that is the golden shimmering just enough bite. It's like, you know, let's not stop when you're still hungry. And let's not go until you're uncomfortable. Like just aim for that nice wide middle zone. Um, and for a lot of people, that's challenging enough because they've been doing so much of the stopping when I'm still hungry because I thought that was how many calories I should have or going until they're over full because the food tastes good. Yeah. So usually we start with kind of just aiming for that green zone, as we call it. Um, once somebody's hitting the green zone, there's a few ways to do it. We can look at um, what their measurements are doing. So if somebody is losing fat and they're in the green zone, you, there's no need to get more specific or prescriptive than that. It's just like, hey, guess what? You're nailing it. Awesome. Uh, if somebody does need a bit more guidance in terms of like, what's an appropriate size meal for an adult? Uh, I tend to say, let's start with one plate. So if you're eating, you know, if you're getting, let's just see how you do with one plate of food. And in terms of ratios, I tend to say, if you can get about half your plate being fruits or vegetables and, or, and a quarter of your plate being some kind of starch or grain or carbohydrate, and then a quarter of your plate being about a, you know, palm size of protein, you're, you're doing better than most Americans or North Americans are. So um, that's a good place to start. And then, of course, there's adjustments. You know, somebody that's a, a 6'4 athlete is going to need to adjust that plate. So, um, so yeah, and then we kind of individualize from there. And, and that's why there's coaching. You know, it's like, I, trust me, I don't make a living selling these books. <laughs> if, I'm, if I'm lucky, I could like buy a cup of coffee. Um, but it's, it's the information is what most people need. And then some people just need a little bit of more support to help them stick it out, get through those rough moments and personalize as that example. Yeah, I think it's tough for the average person because you go on like Facebook or Instagram and you constantly see all the marketing on like, you should be doing this diet. You should be doing that diet. You shouldn't be eating this. And you're like, so what the hell am I supposed to eat? True. Yeah. Very, very true. It's uh, a lot of people just kind of filter their incoming media because they just get tired of seeing the, yeah. I don't know, the fitspiration and, you know, Different <laughs> guys and girls. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like <laughs> models in underwear doing curls and you're like, really <laughs> like, come on. <laughs> I just yeah. want a dinner idea. <laughs> and it almost like gets you into like a rabbit hole of like, I need to find that next thing that is going to work for me and I'm going to lose like 60 pounds in one month. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's one of the toughest things because there's, I have a lot of good news that I feel like we get to share with people, which is like, you don't have to starve yourself. You don't have to live off of celery. Like you can eat treats like you can have some chocolate like i have clients that you know they find ways to work in ice cream and they have pizza once a week and they have you know the foods that they like the, the beer does not have to go yeah <laughs> um and there's good news that you don't have to be hungry all that much like 30 to 60 minutes before you eat each day you know could only be 90 minutes of hunger out of the entire 24 hours you're awake and if that's the weight loss 
you know, margin, that's like, that's not so bad compared to some of the, the other things out there. But the tough thing is that there's no way to beat around the bush that you're not going to lose 10 pounds a week. It's yeah. just not going to happen. Like for most people, it's more realistic to say like probably one pound a week would be really, really good. And for a lot of people, especially if you don't want to be all that uncomfortable, half a pound a week. And, but think about where that plays out. Like that's, that is a whole different look at you in a year. Yeah. I think the average person has probably done at least a, a handful of those crash diets. And then, you know, if they become my client and I tell them this, they're like, really that slow? Like, come on. <laughs> I know it's tough, but, um, that's kind of like what they have in the back of their head that they're able to lose all that weight. But then the moment they go off that crash diet, they're going to just shoot right back up to where they were and maybe even worse. Exactly. Yeah. And that's the, that's how the conversation usually goes for me too. You know, we'll say that it seems slow. I point out that, you know, when you did that thing that, that you did a few years ago and you lost all that weight really fast, one, you were a lot more uncomfortable. You weren't having like, look at your, your food log here. Like you're, you're eating some treats and you're, you know, you, you're enjoying not being on a diet. So the fact that you're losing a half pound a week or one pound a week is nothing to sneeze at because you're, you're much happier than you were then. And you gained all that weight back. Like, I don't think you're going to gain this weight back because we've got, well, we've got data on thousands of people by now that says that, you know, people keep weight off when they lose it in this manner. So the slowness is just uh, part of the, part of the package. I just, yeah, I just tell people like, you got to play the game of the marathon and not the sprint because the people sprinting is just a short little distance and you get like that small little satisfaction, but doing that whole marathon of hard work pays off a lot more in the end. True. True. One of the things that we've, uh, kind of transitioned into, um, you know, language wise since the book came out in 2015 was we used to talk about everything as being habits. You know, all of these behaviors are like forming healthy habits, forming healthy habits. And one of the, the things that we're telling people more lately is that you're building skills because yes, the skills play out in you doing certain behaviors, like eating vegetables at every meal, but the skills also are like, you can't unlearn them. Like once you know how to make vegetables tasty or once you know how to tell when you've had enough to eat, like that is, that's like a lifelong thing once you have that skill. So, um, people kind of take to it differently when they look at, uh, all of this, like as a set of nutrition skills that will take a bit of time to learn. But then once you have them, you're so set. Yeah, definitely. I think when people like start any kind of diet or challenge, they look at all the things they can't do and look at them as like restrictions. And then I just, you know, the day before that diet, they're going to binge eat like crazy knowing that they can't do whatever they want to do. <laughs> totally. Yeah. I call that last supper ring. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> <laughs> definitely. So how do you, um, how do you work through that with your clients? Cause it sounds like you, you hear that as well. People are like bracing for you to lay the rules down. Yeah. Well, like, um, in a few weeks I'm doing a thing called a transformation challenge. I already had one client like, Oh, I'm going to be grocery shopping tomorrow. Like, what am I not allowed to eat? And I'm like, no, you're, <laughs> you're allowed to eat. And it's just going to be, you know, like I basically made all different habits for people to focus on every single week. 
And it's not like you're not allowed to eat this. You're not allowed to do this. You're not allowed to do whatever. It's just small, simple little steps that you can do every single day and not even think about it. And then overall, when you're done the eight weeks, you're going to be going off on your own and you're going to be fine. It was like, you can essentially eat really anything, just not in abundance. Yeah. (laughs) Don't steal it and don't eat it until you paid for it. Like, yeah. Yeah. That's like, it's just like education. Like I look at it as almost like karate where, you know, you're at a white belt. You can't do what a black belt can do just yet, but let's learn the skills to get there. And you're never, like you said, you're never going to forget those skills when you get to a black belt because they're just repeated so many freaking times that it's just embedded in your brain. Yeah, yeah. And doesn't it kind of suck, though, to, like, here, you're just a beginner at this. When yeah. somebody's like, I've been dieting since I was 10. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, like, that's the kind of... Uh, it's not good and it's not bad because I can see both. Like on one hand, it's like, doesn't it suck that you've been dieting for 25 years yeah. and no one's taught you anything? But at the same time, like don't blame yourself for being a beginner. Nobody taught you how to use your hunger cues or how to make your meals the right size and timing to give you the most satisfaction and the least hunger. Yeah. So it's not your fault that this hasn't worked out. Like nobody's taught you this stuff. Nobody taught me this stuff. So it, it would be great. Like, I wish they taught this in schools. Like, this is what hunger actually feels like. Yeah. Like, right in there with, like, this is blue and green. <laughs> yeah. Oh, like, I, in a perfect world, I think, you know, if you got a coaching client and you had, you know, whatever, say a full year program and every week they're supposed to hit homework and they do it. And then after that full year, they're off and ready. But I find, like, that almost never happens. So my question for you is like, at what point do you, why do clients or just people in general trying to eat healthier fail miserably like off and on? I'm not sure what you mean. What do you mean they uh, fail miserably? Uh, Cause like say the average person, they'll like, you know, they want to get healthy. They're starting to eat better. And then out of nowhere, there's one week where they're not doing what they're supposed to do. The next week they kind of come back and then they kind of fall off the wagon and kind of you know, going back and forth of doing the right things and not the right things. Sure. Well, I think everybody can identify with, uh, it's easier to think about it as all or nothing. Yeah. Like it's much easier to be like on or off. So like the, the place we're staying now has all these like really cool lighting fixtures and it's, <laughs> there's like, it's not just a dimmer switch. It's like a dimmer switch with like 10 settings between <laughs> the bright and the off. And so wouldn't you know that my husband and I are like, no, make it one lighter. No, no, no. I want a little darker. Well, I can't see my food. Like, make it a little lighter during dinner time. Yeah. And <laughs> but here are these discussions that we never had at home where the light was on or off. And so it's like you know, the same when you're looking at your, your eating. Like, am I on the diet or am I off the diet? It's much simpler conceptually than if you're thinking, well, okay, so I ate some food that was more high fat today, but you know what? I can still drink my water. I can still make sure I get a good amount of sleep. I can still uh, make sure I get some vegetables in at dinner, even if I had donuts with lunch. Like doing some of the skills and not just quitting is what keeps people in it for the long term. And that's, that's what makes this doable. Even if you're going on vacation or you have a, a birthday and you say, you know, I want to eat cake. I want to eat two pieces of cake. I, you know, I, I don't want to be in a calorie deficit that day. Well, fine. 
you don't have to. Like there's, you just kind of pick and choose what you want to do on a certain day. And if, if you just keep doing something each day, then you're staying in the game and you keep practicing. And um, it's just about not stopping. Yeah, it's almost interesting where like, you know, people are doing really good and then, yeah, they go have a donut. And then from that moment, they're like, well, I already screwed up my whole day. It's just going to keep going this way where you could just tell yourself like, no, 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 like my next meal, it's going to be perfect. It's all good. But it's just interesting to me that, you know, people can cheat with like something small and then their whole day can go downhill from there. Yeah. I think, um, the expectation is huge. Yeah. Like, are you embarking on each day with an expectation that you're going to eat quote perfectly? Or are you looking at the next year of your life? Like you're going to eat perfectly for a year. Like, a donut for a year is just not in the cards for a lot of people. So realistic expectations are like one of the best ways you can arm yourself going in. And, oh, everybody at One by One Nutrition, like every single coach in this company has that. Like we just, we throw that at people like water balloons when they first get in. It's like, you're going to mess up. You're going to overeat when you didn't mean to. You're going to trip and fall and it's okay. We're all tripping and falling and laughing at each other. And we just keep getting up and going. Like you just, yeah, we're going to bobble it. We're beginners, right? Yeah. And that's what like, life is. Really. Yeah, we're going to strike out air ball with oops. <laughs> like it's no big deal. We just say, oops, you know, keep it lighthearted and go back to practicing at your next opportunity. You're, you're a beginner. You're allowed to make all the mistakes. That's the great part about being a beginner. No one expects you to be good at this. Yeah. So, yeah, over time, you get better, you have fewer mistakes, and you, you learn something every time that you overeat or, quote, mess up. Now, my next question for you is when you deal with uh, coaching clients and, like, maybe they have signs of, say, like an eating disorder or emotional eating, like, how do you approach them and how do you kind of get them to overcome that struggle? Well, all coaching is driven forward by what the client wants. Mm -hmm. So if somebody comes to us, as many people do, and they say, you know, I have an unhealthy relationship with food for this reason or that reason, and I want to get better, that is a much better place to start with than somebody that comes to you and says, I want to lose 10 pounds. And then you start to find out that they have no excess weight to lose. Yeah. And that they're pro if you're observing in someone an unhealthy relationship with food that, that they are not aware of or they're in denial of, that's very different because that person may not be ready or want to work on it. And that's, no, they're an adult. That's their, their right to, to not work on that at this point. Um, ethically, you know, I, I think I can speak for all, all of us um, in my company that if somebody wants to lose weight, but we feel like it's not in their uh, best interest in terms of their overall well-being, like we're not going to uh, be part of that journey. You know, we, we don't work with figure competitors or people that want to get on a bodybuilding stage just because that's not our thing. Like there are people that love that, that are pros and experts in that. And that's awesome. They will be a better person to have on your side. If that's what you want to do than somebody on my team. Um, we do encounter a lot of people that deal with emotional eating and we have skills geared specifically toward, um, you know, strengthening yourself and overcoming emotional eating, just like we have skills to help people overcome overeating and calorie excess. So what some of those are would be based around 
you have to get some skills around your emotions and finding ways to handle your emotions and respond to your emotions differently. Because if, if you have a history of reacting with food, the easiest thing to do is to keep reacting with food. And so to change that, uh, the first level is probably just feeling the different signals that you're getting from not only your body as in hunger, but also from your mind and your, your emotions. So feeling, oh, okay, I'm starting to get frustrated is a step that is uh, not where a lot of people are. Like a lot of people just recognize, I feel bad and I want food now. And it takes a bit of practice to get at, like, okay, you feel bad. What are you feeling? Are you feeling sad? Are you feeling angry? Are you feeling frustrated? Are you feeling disappointed? Like, let's get a little more skill at identifying those emotions. And then we can look at what are more appropriate actions to take. So, for example, if, if somebody's noticing that they're regularly eating chocolate out of disappointment, then we can, you know, first start with doing something differently when you're disappointed. And second, we can deal with the prevalence of disappointment in that person's life by looking at, like, what are your expectations that are so frequently not being met by reality? And that's just... That's awesome. I think that's like a lot of our favorite stuff to do is not only help somebody lose the extra weight, but realize that losing the extra weight is going to equip them with skills that make them a happier, more balanced person. It's just overall well-being improves. Um, so I guess that was a little bit of a bird walk uh, away from disordered eating because emotional eating disorder eating are very, they're related, but encompass a lot of different things. Yeah. If somebody has... Um, Symptoms of an eating disorder, such as an inability to maintain a minimally healthful body weight, then that's somebody that's going to be best off being seen by uh, a psychologist uh, or another mental health professional, more so than a dietitian or um, an online dietitian. Like, there's some wonderful things about nutrition coaching remotely. I can see people on their lunch hour. I talk to them while they're at their desk, whatever. But one of the downsides is that I can't put my eyes on a person. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when somebody's dealing with an eating disorder, it's really, really important to have a doctor um, and other medical staff looking at you to make sure that you're, you know, to check you out and to see how you are looking and symptoms that you're having physically. So so for that reason, we, we decline to work with people that have anorexia nervosa. Um. More commonly than that, we get people that have symptoms of disordered eating that aren't really an eating disorder, and they tend to respond really well to regular good nutrition practices, such as eating three meals a day or four meals a day, each of them being uh, a meal that you got hungry for and that you stop when you're satisfied because it can break people out of the pattern of skipping meals and starving and then overeating and making the cells feel bad and then trying to make up for that by compulsive exercise the next day. So we're kind of just breaking, like turning the dial down on the drama. Like let's just get some nice, stable, predictable self-care in here and some self-talk skills. Like how do you treat yourself? Are you kind to yourself? Are you mean to yourself? Are you forgiving and understanding? And do you have self-compassion? And so a lot of those skills uh, really do help people that have elements of disordered eating or just an unhealthy relationship with food. Yeah. It almost seems like the more you learn about your clients, you're like, wow, I'm not even a trainer anymore 
or a coach. I'm like their personal like guidance counselor almost. Sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes. And some clients don't want that. Yeah. And that's okay. Like I have, I have totally had clients be like, you know, I'd rather not talk about that. (laughs) They're like, whoops. You know, I totally respect that. Let's go back to dinner planning. Yeah. It's, it's, um, I get so interested in the person and the why and, you know, what is contributing to them making these choices that, you know, I want to know about what's stressing them out and taking up some of their, you know, uh, emotional energy during the day and you know what's stressing them out and drawing on them and keeping them up late at night so yeah yeah it's uh it's always with love but you know I guess a time or two I have gotten a little too curious people are like yeah can we just go back to talking about my food thanks (laughs) (laughs) so what do you really think like on average that stems like from emotional eating because I can't remember who told me this or maybe I read it but like an example was that if say when you were a child and you like fell over and your mother would come over and you know soothe you and she would give you like a cookie to make you feel better and that constant habit of you know you getting hurt mom gives you a treat will like translate into your adult life so anytime you felt sad about yourself you would eat something sweet knowing that it would make you feel better is that like an example or what do you think that's that's exactly the sort of thing that um you know, typically happens when we're young is it's prevalent to soothe ourselves with food. And that's not a bad thing. Like, I don't mean to say that with judgment, but if we start to use that at the exclusion of all the other self-soothing things, like, I'm not even self-soothing, but soothing others, like you can soothe your child with a hug or, you know, caressing their head or telling them it's going to be okay uh, with words. You can, you know, pick them up. You can sing to them. You can do so many things. So it's not like, Oh my God, you have, you ruined your child for life because you gave them a cookie (laughs) to make them stop crying. Like it's certainly not that extent, but when we stop doing all of the other things and food is exclusively used, then it can become, you know, more of a problematic pattern because people lose those other abilities to self-soothe as they get older. And so if we rely exclusively on food for self-soothing, then every lump and bump in life that happens to us, whether it's physical injury or emotional hurt, we start to want that, that food and it becomes a reinforcing pattern. And there's nothing kind of crazy about that. Like who would not want to feel better when you are feeling distress or pain, right? Like this is a very protective mechanism. It's, um, it's just a matter of discovering that there are other ways and that we can use those as well so that we don't excessively use food. Cause we all know that if, you know, three times a year you have a horrible day and you decide you want a blizzard, that this is not a bad thing. Like this is not, <laughs> this is not an eating problem. It, it starts to become a problem when it's impacting your physical health or when you're starting to not feel good about it or it's leading to an unhealthy body weight and that doesn't happen from three times a year that happens you know maybe if it's three times a week yeah so it's it's a matter of frequency i don't mean to say that that all emotional eating is bad or all self-soothing is bad but if you find that it's if it's producing outcomes you don't like then that's a, a a nice time to see if you want to adjust your actions how much do you think stress is involved with those kind of bad eating habits? It certainly is involved. Yeah. Uh, with regard to how much, for some people, it's massive. You know, stress um, 
So there's the first aspect of just habit forming. So if somebody's formed the habit of that's how they respond to stress, then clearly the more stress they're under, the more trouble they're going to have with that excess calorie intake. Yeah. Um, There are some people for whom stress makes them eat less, about 20% of the population. Um, So for them, it's not so much of a a weight problem per se, but um, stress does also cause physical changes that make us want to eat more sugar and want to eat more high-fat foods and want to eat less nutritious foods. So somebody that's under chronic stress, they have, you know, they work 12 hour days and then they have a long commute. It's, um, it's more likely that they're going to just eat an overall less nutritious diet because the stress is you know, just kind of driving them to eat more immediate gratification foods. Yeah. Um, and in terms of working through that, because a lot of times we can't just get rid of the stress, it's, uh, you know, incorporating some activities that help unwind from the stress because some level of stress is healthy and the way we approach it um just like hunger can make the difference between whether it's damaging to us or just makes us a bit stronger and we see things as a you know a challenge so some level of stress can help us become more resilient but you also need to have the the counteracting time of you know restorative sleep some outdoors time uh, a time when you're not working and doing something pleasurable. So those lifestyle elements come in. Um, as well as I, I talk with people about not using food when you're under that like really peak emotional intensity and high stress because it's actually more habit-forming to put sugar in your mouth at that time than it would if you were just having it on a relaxed afternoon because chocolate sounded yummy. Yeah. I, know, I find... Uh like a typical like stress reliever that probably most people go to is like one bottle of wine to themselves and then they call it a day. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. yeah. I was just talking with somebody yesterday, uh, one of my clients and you know, like many people, she says like, I just want to come home and I'm so stressed and I want to calm down. Like the glass of wine is so tempting because it works. Yeah. You know, like sometimes the shower doesn't do it. I'm still just thinking about, work stuff when I'm in the shower. Um, and sometimes I'm too tired to exercise and the wine is like, man, there's no effort that needs to go in. I just, it's just right there and it's not expensive and it's easy. And, um, yeah, alcohol definitely becomes a challenge for a lot of people. How do you usually work with that in, in your clients? Um, well, like when I get a good sense of how much they're drinking, and I tell them, like, I, I think majority of clients know that their drinking habits is probably not the best thing for them. So the moment I find out how much it is, I'm like, can you go with one less glass a week? And they're like, oh, yeah, I guess so. Right? If you give them, like, something small, I find that it's not that big of a deal. They're more inclined to say, yeah, totally, let's do that. Right. And it sounds like such a relief, I bet, compared yeah. to like, they're ready for you to be like, okay, knock off the drinking. Yeah, definitely. I did have one client where, but this was more of his personality. I bet him $100 that he could not stop drinking for a month. Okay. And he took me up on the offer. He didn't drink for a month and he lost like 24 pounds. And I was Holy like, moly. Hey, I was like, dude, this is awesome. He's like, perfect. I can start drinking again. I'm like, no, <laughs> that's not the point. <laughs> and you gave him a hundred dollars to get started with. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> but like, I don't know. That's kind of almost beyond 
I think my scope, like you can touch on it a little bit, but that's why I always kind of find like at what point should you maybe refer out? And then when you do refer out to make it in a, you know, an environment that they don't feel like threatened, like you're coming after them that, no, I don't have a habit of this, this, and this. I'm not addicted. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I've, uh, I make a lot of referrals, um, for certain things more than others. Um, most of the referrals that I do are actually when I feel like somebody would benefit from seeing a mental health professional to due to depression or anxiety or just struggles with motivation. Like sometimes it comes out that like, I feel like somebody's just having such a hard time taking care of themselves, but it's not really a food issue. It's more of like a just, you know, they sound like they're dealing with uh, depression, but I can't diagnose that. It's out of my scope. So I say, yeah, I think it, it might be worth just seeing if you can get a little bit more help there. Alcohol, on the other hand, I have never made a referral. Mm-hmm. And here's why. Because <laughs> I've clearly had alcoholic clients. Because when we start to get at the fact that they may change everything else about their diet, but it's still the alcohol that's preventing them from getting results. Every time I've gotten to that point, which has not been many, I'd say five over the course of years on hundreds of clients, I'd say I've gotten five people down to the point where it was really only the alcohol left between them and the, their results. Mm-hmm. They quit because they'd rather keep the alcohol. That's just been my, my experience. Every time they're just not interested in changing the alcohol, they will change everything else, but not the alcohol. Um, that's rare because most people I find are willing to change not cut out the alcohol, but at least reduce it. Um, and when I get somebody that just won't even reduce it, that's usually not, it's usually not going to go well. Yeah. Um, but all that said, if somebody's eating healthfully and even if they're not losing weight, if there's, you know, it's better to keep the same amount of alcohol, but at least be exercising and getting some vegetables in and getting some protein in, like I'm sure it's better for their health than the fast food and alcohol diet. Yes, definitely. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I've had one person ask me if I thought she had trouble with alcohol because she was having such a hard time reducing it. It was kind of like she would reduce it and then it would creep back up and she'd reduce it and it would creep back up. And she asked me, do I think she's an alcoholic? And I said, no, because people who are as concerned about it um, like she was concerned that she was in denial. And I basically said, no, you're not in denial because look how concerned you are. Like we talk about it every time. Yeah. You're clearly concerned about this. It's clearly in the forefront of your mind and you're working on it consistently. It's just a challenge. You know, for some people, it's always a bit of a challenge. Just like, you know, peanut butter is always a bit of a challenge. <laughs> oh, I can eat that. Like just by the spoonful. <laughs> Me too. I yeah. do. I eat, uh, I eat peanut butter every day and it's uh, kind of like a running joke that, uh, you know, if, if I somehow del- um, developed a peanut allergy, I might waste away and die because it's, it's such a large proportion of my calories. Are you crunchy person or smooth? I prefer the smooth, but I like the natural ones that have a bit of a grain to them. Yeah. So it's not, um, completely, but I will, I will go either way in terms of the texture as long as it's salted. Yes, definitely. If there's no salt in the peanut butter, I am getting the salt shaker and salting it. <laughs> it's a crime. It's a crime. It's yeah. not salted. <laughs> Welcome back, guys, to another episode of Cut the Shit, Get Fit. 
I am your host, Rafael Matuszewski, and I got another awesome guest for you guys. Say hello to Jason Phillips. What's going on, man? I uh, I didn't even know that was the name of your podcast. I love it. That is, uh, I think I, I think I saw it somewhere, and yeah. but that might be the best name of a podcast I've ever been on. That's great. Oh yeah, like I I can't remember how I got like the name. I think I was just like sitting down. I'm like I gotta get a name. I was just like swearing in my head. I'm like cut the shit. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, it's funny, man. I mean, you know, with uh, with my former brand, you know, one of the brands I co-founded, um, you know, we had the shirts that said "Driven as Fuck." Yeah. And I like, I literally, I remember it was like one in the morning, and I was doing something, and I text my designer, and I'm like, I need a shirt that says "Driven as Fuck," <laughs> and you know, like it's just every now and then, man, like you get this moment of inspiration, and it sticks, and you run with it. But I think that's cool, man. I like it a lot. I actually like like having a swear word like halfway through something because then that like gets someone's attention so quickly and they're like, oh, yep. "What are you saying? Let me let me hear you." <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's authentic, yeah. you know. I mean, like I've never and you know if anyone's ever heard me talk and obviously everybody that hears this today, like I don't censor myself and it's not because I think it's cool to swear or anything like that, but it's like that's me. Like I've I've been that way since I was 19 years old and. You know, I'm not changing for anything. I mean, I've done public speaking engagements where I've been asked to tone the language down, and obviously I comply. Um, but you know, if you want like the full message, then you know, let's let's just go at it. And, and sometimes those words come out, sometimes they don't. But hey, impact is impact. Definitely. So, kind of tell the audience who you are, what you do, and how you got into this industry. Yeah, man. Um, so, I guess a little bit about who I am. I'm. Um, I'm kind of the the go-to nutritional consultant in the CrossFit space right now, um, and and so that's been an evolution. You know, I've I've started nutritional consulting all the way back, um, you know, when I was like 19, 20 years old, um, and ironically, that comes off the heels of an eating disorder. So when I was uh, just 19, I was anorexic and I was 118 pounds. Um, so, you know, everyone listening, picture a five, nine, five, ten guy at 118 pounds, not a very good look. Um, but yeah, and so it was a pretty gnarly time in my life. Um, you know, I obviously like, you know, food and your relationship with food and your body image, it can, it can kind of, you know, roll itself over into other aspects of your life. And so it's definitely in a bit of a downward spiral. Um, but you know, fortunately for me, I came out of it. And I ended up going to school for exercise science with a concentration in fitness and nutrition. And, you know, the passion that you have for something, like when you overcome something so severe like that, it's, it's immense, man. And like, I, it's been my mission from day one, um, of, you know, overcoming anorexia to pay it forward. Like I know what the diet and training world did for me, um, for my outlook on life and for building me and the character and the person I've become. And I want to pay that forward to as many people as possible. So even when I was in school, you know, my buddies would want help, like, you know, gaining weight or, or getting bigger or, or, you know, my female friends would want to get leaner. And I was like the first person to be like, yeah, like, let me help you. You know, and it was never a monetary thing. It was genuinely like, I want to fucking help people, man. Like, that's it. And, and even today, like, I, there's people out there that come up to me all the time and want to ask questions and, you know, my girlfriend would probably tell you that being out with me is a pain in the ass because I will literally sit there and talk with every single person that wants to talk to me. Um, but you know, it's, uh, it's my passion, man. It's, it's what I do. I don't ever want to do anything else. And fortunate for, you know, fortunately for me, um, I've, I've built a pretty successful business with it. 
Yeah, I love that. I love coaches that had their own experience with something like that. Like even yep. for myself, because I used to like I'm at five nine and I used to weigh about two hundred fifteen pounds in high school, lost all the weight and I went down to I think it was like one forty. And yeah. people noticed like, holy crap, how did you do that? And I was like, I clued it. I'm like, oh my God, this is what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to help people lose weight and get through that struggle. Yeah. And yeah, because oftentimes it's related to so many different things, right? Like it's yeah. never, as you know, as a coach, it's never the weight. It's never the number on the scale. It's never, you know, it's something so much deeper. Like it's a sense of self-value, self-worth. Like, you know, you've been told something in your life that just absolutely crushed you and destroyed your body image. And, you know, when you dig into those kinds of things, man, like it's, it's powerful. Yeah. I think we have the advantage where you can actually, you've been there where that client's been. Whereas yes. like some coaches, like, you know, they played high level sports all their life. They almost made the pros and they're like, Oh, I guess I'm going to become a coach now. Yeah. Well, and that, and I would honestly say that's the difference between a good coach and a bad coach, right? Like, I mean, I write articles all the time where I'm like, Hey, like, you know, pick up your Instagram feed and scroll through it. And how many jackasses are promoting a $99 templated diet? And, you know, you probably see fucking 15 of them. And, but like, what are their credentials? Like, great. They got themselves fit. Like, I don't really think that's that impressive. I don't. I mean, you know, I, if you can rehab, if you can rehabilitate someone's metabolism, if you can take an overweight person with insulin resistance and get them lean and, and fix that insulin resistance, you know, if you can take somebody that's in a disease state, get them healthy, if you can improve athletic performance and improve body composition, okay, like now talk to me because that's a skill set, you know, um, just because you have a six pack, like doesn't mean that much to me. Yeah, it's funny when you go on Instagram or Facebook and all you see on their accounts are just like shirtless selfies every yeah. single day. And you're like, that's not really motivating. You're just like, no. you're just like, hey, look at me. I'm freaking awesome. You should trade with me. Yeah, I mean, it's like, I, really, I tell people like that's your cue to run the other way because if they're only promoting what they look like and not the success of their clients, um, that's scary. Yeah. Um, so like what's your major philosophy on like fitness and fat loss? Yeah. Um, it's, you know, I, I tell everybody I don't have one, right. I think that my, if, if I have one philosophy, it's that every single person needs to be treated as an individual. Um, I think that where the game is short right now is in terms of real coaches and coaches that want to invest in their clients and get to know their clients and learn about them, the people, what makes them tick, who they are, what their metabolic history is, right? Instead of just having them fill out some half-assed piece of paper and then prescribing based off a template. Um, you know, yeah, like it's, it's becoming very apparent in, in today's state that, yeah, you can make money online prescribing diets and prescribing training routines. But, you know, I think the world is short of like true, like real coaches. Um, and, and I think that's like, you know, that's where my philosophy comes in is you damn well better be able to build that relationship with your client. Um, I would say 100% my method is predicated on human interaction, um, on communication, and, and then obviously moving into solid dietary principles. But, you know, before you even get into the diet and training, it's built on that human interaction. Definitely. So like what I've seen online for you, you're kind of more towards like macros. Is that your end all be all or do you do other things with people as well? Yeah, I think that you have to be, you got to be a bit of a chameleon, right? I mean, like if you and I got on this conversation and you're like, dude, I'm never going to count a macro in my life. And I was like, 
cool, I only do macros, then I'm probably going to lose you as a client. Yeah. Now, some business coaches would be like, great, like stick to what you do. I don't really agree with that. If I really believe I can help you, um, then I'm going to find a way to help you. So um, I would say that my preferred approach is to use a flexible dieting approach. I definitely have seen lots of success with it. And I think there's a lot of education that goes in um, for the person. But it's not my end-all, be-all. Um, you know, there's, I can essentially make anything work if the person's willing to work hard enough. So for those who don't know, what is flexible dieting? Yeah, so you know, back in the day, um, if you were dieting, it was like a very strict set of foods, right? It's like, oh, you eat chicken and broccoli or mm-hmm. you know, fish and rice or you know, whatever else. Um, and all of a sudden, you know, I believe it was like Lane Norton and Joe Klazemski that brought it to the forefront. And they basically came and they said, hey, it's not really what you eat, but it's how much you eat. Um, and they brought to the forefront this notion that it's really how much protein, carbohydrate, and fat do you intake daily? Um, and, and based on that, you could essentially fit whatever foods you want into those numbers, assuming you routinely hit those numbers. Um, you know, and if you look at like the natural bodybuilding scene, that's, uh, you know, flexible dieting is very prevalent there. The proof is in the pudding, man. I mean, those guys get more ripped than professional bodybuilders that are on drugs. Yeah. And, you know, so it definitely works. Um, I think it's becoming a little bit bastardized. And I think that what was once meant to be like, hey, you don't have to eat the same boring shit every day. You can have a little bit of fun has now become, hey, how much shit can you eat? Um, you know, how many donuts and pop tarts and fucking cereal can you fit into your diet? Um, and, and, you know, listen, that does still work. Like, I'm not going to sit here and argue that that doesn't work. But just because you look great on the outside doesn't mean you're healthy inside. And when I work with a client, we're not just looking cosmetics, right? We're looking cosmetics and long-term health. And usually if they're a CrossFit client, performance. Yeah, I think that falls also like if you start trying to fit in so much bad food throughout the week in your diet, like you're almost more prone to like start binging and just get out of the whole, you know, healthy. Dude, I've (laughs) I've seen eating disorders built on flexible dieting because of that, man. Like I remember I used to watch like the bodybuilding.com forums and you know, these college kids would go on and they got nothing else to do, man. Like they're, you know, probably skipping class so that they can sit on the forum and posting food porn pictures of like their latest like yogurt bowl and cereal and whatever the hell else they're throwing in there. And, you know, it's, it's funny cause I would watch and, you know, I, I would lurk so to speak and I would never really post. And it was just like, I really wanted to see the psychology that went into it. And inevitably, man, like four to six months after these people's shows, they're nowhere to be found. And then four to six months after that, they come back and they're like, yeah, guys, like really had to get my head out of my ass. Like I had an issue with food and I'm trying to find balance. And it's like, you know, again, like any dietary protocol that creates massive amounts of obsession is not healthy. Um, you know, first and foremost, man, like we're in this for something that we can sustain long-term. If, if you can't sustain what I tell you to do to get your results, then I'm telling you to do something completely wrong. Yeah, like that's what when my clients come up to me and they're like, oh, so I've read about this diet, like what do you think about it? And I'm like, well, just ask yourself, can you do it for the rest of your life? Yep. And like, yeah, if, 100%. If the answer is no, then it's probably not that great for you. Yeah, yeah, it's all in the application too, right? I mean, that's, you know, it's, well, should I do keto if I CrossFit? I mean, because keto is really popular right now, right? Yeah. Like, you know, Dom going on Tim Ferriss's show and, all of a sudden the whole world wants these ketones and then there's an MLM company that comes out with ketones and 
you know, now the whole world's like, oh, the ketogenic diet's going to fucking cure cancer. And, um, you know, nobody even looks at the application. Like, ketogenic diet's great in certain settings, right? If you want to live a long time, yeah, it's very healthy, you know? If you're an aerobic athlete, sure. There's a lot of studies coming out that says it's great. Um, some bodybuilders could use ketogenic diets pretty well. Um, but if, you know, if you're in a sport that requires glucose, well, then no, don't fucking do it. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, so I mean, I, I just think that sometimes we have to stop looking in such blanketed terms and we really have to think a little more critically. Definitely. So now going back with macros, like for the average person, like what should they be focusing on? Like if they were actually taking the time to track everything, like what would be a good split from like protein, carbs and fat? Actually, so one of the things you just said is, is the first thing I tell everybody. Um, you know, I think self-awareness in all aspects of life is going to help you win, right? And, and that's something that, like, I'm a big fan of Gary Vee. Anybody that follows me knows that I'm, I'm massively, like, entrenched in what he puts out there. I've, I've obviously been, you know, fortunate enough to, to meet up with him. But, you know, I kind of took that and I applied it to the dietary realm. And step number one is knowing, well, what is your intake? And, and you probably know it from being a trainer, you know, somebody comes into the gym and you're like, well, what do you eat? Uh, you know, they're like, oh, I want to get bigger. And you're like, great, you got to eat a lot. And they're like, yeah, I eat a lot. Um, and then you have them log their food and they had like two meals. Yeah. And they're like, yeah, but dude, I can't eat anymore. I'm full. Okay, great. But you're still not eating a lot. Right. So like at the end of the day, I think the first step for every single person out there that's going to undertake an endeavor is, well, where do you sit today? Um, are you, super low calorie or you super high calorie? Um, are you in a decent caloric range, but with terrible macronutrient composition? I think that's first step. Um, you know, so then if I were to break it down into, well, what's a good, um, macro split, you know, I would turn the question right back on you. Well, well give me like the case study, right? Like tell me the individual, because if I sat out here and I don't know, thousands of people listen to this podcast and they're like, Oh, he said 30, 30, 40. Yeah. Um, that might fit six of them. Um, so, you know, and, and so I really, I never speak in generalities. Um, I'm very big on, on asking lots of questions and, and knowing as much as I can about the individual. Um, and then we create that custom prescription. Uh, we can do a case study right now if you don't mind. Yeah, no, absolutely. Happy to. Uh, so let's go with a mother of three. She's mm -hmm. done every diet that you can think of. And she still thinks that eating less than a thousand calories is going to get her to lose weight. But she hit mm -hmm. a plateau and she doesn't know where to go, and she just expects results quick and fast, and we're trying to tell her that, no, it's slow and steady wins the race. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the reality is she's already living sub-1,000 calories, um, and so she's probably living somewhat in what we would call metabolic adaptation. And mm -hmm. so, like, you know, two, three years ago, that was mistakenly called metabolic damage. Um, and, you know, obviously Lyle, being kind of the dick that he is, pointed that out and was like, it's metabolic adaptation. Um, but you know, so obviously everyone's using the proper words now, but basically like her body has adapted to living low calorie, but part of that adaptation is shutting down its ability to burn fat. Mm -hmm. Um, so really what I'm going to tell this person is I'm going to explain just that and be like, listen, you essentially have lost your ability to lose fat at this point, And we have to rebuild that first. Um, and I'm going to get her to buy into what I call a reverse diet process. Um, and now there's two, um, kind of schools of thoughts in terms of reverse dieting. You know, there's a school of thought that says you have to get your calories up to maintenance, um, and then you can start dropping and creating fat loss. Or there's a school that says you can slowly incrementally work your way to maintenance, um, and then slowly bring your way back down. 
I'm more on the second school of thought because I like to take into account the mental component. So let's arbitrarily say she's eating 1,000 calories. Um, as a decent rule of thumb, you can start by increasing 20% of total calories. So my prescription to her would actually be to start at 1,200. But here's the beautiful thing about that. She's not going to freak out because I'm not telling her to eat 1,800 calories, right? No. I'm only telling her to eat just a little bit more. Um, if she hasn't been in metabolic adaptation too long, we're actually going to see a very positive fat loss response. And by eating more, A, she's going to get a slightly higher hunger signal, which we know hunger is a very big sign of metabolic, adi- uh, metabolic activity, right? So all of a sudden her metabolic hormones are working, leptin and ghrelin are starting to upregulate again. Um, and she's probably going to start to lose weight. So then we can slowly incrementally increase her calories over a period of time get her into an appropriate fat loss range or even maintenance range. Um, we're winning because we're getting her healthier. She's winning because she's losing the weight that she wants to lose. Everybody wins. Um, you know, We could go deeper and say, well, let's say she has been in metabolic adaptation for a long time. Um, you know, It's going to suck as the nutritionist because you're going to add calories and she's going to gain weight. She's going to think you're an asshole. Um, but what's the alternative? Go back to eating 800 calories and still not lose weight? Um, like let's fix the damage and then let's get you to lose weight. Um, the most extreme example I can give of that is I worked with a woman and I'm not kidding you, dude, for 18 months, she didn't lose a single pound with me, but it took us 18 months to slowly reverse diet her. If I would have told her to, you know, go to maintenance calories on day one, she would have gained a ton of weight. Um, and she would have never trusted me again. So I really had to get her to buy into the process, understand the process. You know, I found peer reviewed articles that I sent her. Um, Minnesota starvation study is a great one. You know, it was like literally people are in starvation. Um, you know, you took them back up to maintenance calories and all metabolic markers came back to normal. Um, so it does work. It's just a matter of how are you going to approach it with a client? What's your relationship with that client? And that goes back to what I was saying earlier. If you don't build that relationship with your client, um, none of this is ever going to work. Yeah, I think people tend to fall into like they want themselves to suffer enough to be able yeah. to lose weight rather than like, how about we start up slow right. and work up to it? <laughs> like well, I think there's such a there's such a connotation in the public that losing weight has to hurt. Yeah. Um, you know, if you're trying to get down to like four and six percent body fat, yeah, that's gonna hurt. Yeah. Like don't get me wrong, man. Like your hormone output's gonna go down, like you're gonna be tired, it's gonna affect sleep, it's gonna affect mood, it's gonna affect energy. But if you're just trying to get to like an appropriate like eight to ten percent range, like that doesn't have to hurt. Yeah. And there's there's no reason that can't be lifestyle friendly. Definitely like I think Gary actually said this is like you want to play the game of the marathon and not the sprint. Always. Right? Like always. But 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 you know, but people hire you because they want results yesterday. Yeah. And there's and there's so many like eight week transformations, twelve week transformations, right? And I try to I I broke it down one time and I said, you know, if you think about it from a from like a theoretical perspective, if I if you had to write a twelve week transformation program tomorrow. And I gave you like eight avatars and I'm like, this program has to work for all, all eight people, all eight avatars. You're going to take the person with the shittiest metabolism and you're going to build it for them because you know, it's going to work for the other seven, right? Cause they they can, you know, their calorie deficit is a higher number than that shitty person. So you're going to use the shittiest person. You're going to build it for them. So all these like 10 and 12 week transformations are predicated on somebody with a very poor metabolism and somebody with stubborn fat loss. So if you happen to be average in your ability to lose fat, yeah, you're going to lose it really quickly, but long-term you're going to fuck your metabolism. Yeah. 
Now, how much does like eating behaviors play in a role of trying to lose weight in your opinion? Oh, massively. Yeah. Um, I mean, habits are, you know, one of the things that I know John Berardi tried to bring to the public in, you know, precision was like the habit based approach. Um, I take a little bit of issue with that because honestly, we all are today where we are because of our habits. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think first step again is creating that awareness. Well, what are my habits? And that's actually where food tracking for three to four days comes into play. You know, like I said, somebody could come to you and be like, I eat a lot. Um, well, numbers don't lie, right? If you track your food and it says you only ate 1200 calories, well, you don't eat a lot. You might think you do, but the 1200 calories that you just tracked are not lying to you. Um, so, you know, I think first and foremost, it's knowing, okay, well, what do we take in? Um, but yeah, man, relationship with food, like, like you and I talked about when we were talking about the flexible dieters, you see these people that are like, well, how much shit food can I fit into my day? Mm-hmm. It really creates this really negative relationship with food that long term is just not going to work. Yeah, like I remember when I used to work at a big box gym and like everyone was doing a show and then especially the women, not so much the men at that point, but you know, they would do their show and then like, yeah, they're gone for like a month from the gym and they come back like 30 pounds heavier because they're like picking out on like a whole cheesecake to themselves every night. Yep. No, exactly, man. And you know, it's, it's funny, dude. So I, um, well, you're in, uh, you know, you're in Vancouver. And so Scott Abel was a really big, like fitness guru up there, right? He's in Kelowna Mm -hmm. and he, um, really like, I think he was like ahead of his time with like dietary protocols, really smart guy. And so he built what was called the cycle diet. And it was basically you live in a calorie deficit for six days. And on the seventh day, it's like your spike day. And it's, it's like your cheat day. Like you eat as much as you possibly want. And he has stories of like going to the cheesecake factory and eating a whole carrot cake. And like, like Chris Aceto has like witnessed it. But by like seven days later, man, like by baseline day, he was leaner. And so I did the cycle diet and I worked with Scott for a while. And dude, let me tell you, like I was ripped out of my mind. Like – I walked around and by bodybuilding standards, like I had shredded glutes, like walking around day to day. Like I was fucking lean. But I got to tell you, my relationship with food became awful because all I wanted in every week was I got to get to day seven. Yeah. I got, you know, like nothing in life mattered, dude. I didn't care about work. I really didn't even care much about my workouts. It was more like I had to do them and burn enough calories in them so that I could get to day seven and like, you know, shove my face like full of shit. Yeah, I think a lot of coaches fall into that because, like, that's yeah, they've read that bun like a couple of years back. They're like, "Oh yeah, cheat day. I'm gonna have pizza, pasta, and then like you're in a food coma for the whole day, and then it's Sunday. You're like, oh, I can't wait till Saturday.'" <laughs> yeah, that's it, man. Like, you know, the next day you're like recovering. You're like, "Oh, I feel good." You know, you're kind of got like a little stomach upset, maybe, but um, you know, then by like Tuesday, Wednesday, you're like, "Well, fuck, man. Like, when do I get more pizza?" <laughs> yeah, honestly. But, like, I was reading um, John Romanello's book, uh, The Alpha Male, mm-hmm. and I think I think it might be the second or third phase in the program, and they actually prescribe that cheat day on the one day, but the following day you do a 24-hour fast. And they were trying to, like, manipulate certain hormones, and I was like, you know, like, it's a, I get it. Like, it's a, an idea, and maybe there's a small population of people that are able to have that willpower, but, you know... You know, average Joe down the street that just hits the weights heavy picks up this book and he's like, "All right, this is what I'm gonna do." I don't know if that's 
the best approach for someone like that? Well, I just think, I mean, again, it goes back to a statement you made, right? Like how often, like by doing this, like how long can you sustain this? And can you really sustain having a fast day in your life, the rest of your life? And I'm going to say the answer is resoundingly no. Um, but you know, it's, uh, I mean, I like Roman a lot. Like, you know, him and I have actually recently connected quite a bit. Um, and, you know, but again, internet marketing is internet marketing, man. You have to have a sexy tactic to sell. Yeah. Now, what do so. you think of actually intermittent fasting if we're just talking about that? Um, I don't think that it's anything like, I still think it comes down to overall quantity consumed in a day. Um, so from my research, and again, this is just like putting different puzzle, like different puzzle pieces together. I think it's actually a reasonable tool for fat loss. Um, but I do not in any way think it's a great tool for muscle gain. Um, so I do think that like, you know, if you hit a plateau, um, all things being equal calorically, it may give you like a little bit of a boost. Now, fasting protocols that I use for my clients are more on like the digestive health side. Um, I'm a big fan of, of keeping digestion healthy, um, using fasting and that's really like where I put it in with my athletes. But, um, in an athletic setting and a performance setting, I don't, it has no merit whatsoever. Yeah. Like I remember, uh, I think I was reading John Berardi's article when he's tried it and I was like, you know what, I'm going to give it a shot. And ever since, I think it's been now four years that I've been doing it. It's just now a habit. And it just like, mm-hmm. I just noticed it just worked better for my schedule because I wake up at 5 a.m. every day and then train clients until 11. So it's like, now I don't have to worry about breakfast, mm-hmm. getting a shake in between clients on the treadmill, and then like starving at lunch. And now I don't have to worry about that at all. And then just boom, lunch is my first meal, eat a huge meal, and then throughout the day like that. Yeah, no, you know, I think that that's like, if you're doing it because it suits your schedule better, I think that's the reason you should do it. Yeah. I don't think that you should do it because someone's like, Oh, this is going to 20 X your results. Like, uh, sorry about that, dude. Somebody called my phone. Um, <laughs> no worries. I was so, like, what happened? <laughs> um, so, um, so I'm sorry. Where was I? Uh, fasting fits into your schedule and lifestyle, I think. Oh, okay. Yeah. No. So, I mean, I think that like, I think that like the beauty of intermittent fasting and even carb backloading to some extent and, you know, all of, you know, these like topics, it really brought into light that like, oh my God, you don't have to eat every three hours, you know? And, and that's something that like Lane and, and Eric Helms and, and all of those guys were promoting like quite some time ago. Um, you know, they were like looking into meal timing, but I, I'm glad to see it now, like in the public that like, no longer is it believed the only way to lose fat is to eat every three hours. Yeah, and like it's almost more visually appealing if like you're only eating three or four meals a day and they're bigger and you're like... I, I agree. Yeah, and you're like, okay, I can do this. Whereas the six or five meals a day, it's like, oh, almonds and a small little apple, awesome. Right, <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing fun about that whatsoever. And then you're probably more prone to overeating if you're always constantly eating small little things because you're like, oh, I could probably use something else and calories spill over and boom. (laughs) I would agree. Uh, So how do you do fasting for, like you were saying, with your athletes for digestion? Like, Yeah, so I mean there's actually really good research that in like prolonged fasting that digestive enzymes will upregulate 
And so, I mean, I've got a few studies on it. So really like one of the first things I see, like when, you know, digestion gets really shitty is sometimes on like a Sunday morning, I'll have them fast to like 11 or 12 o'clock. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's somebody that's used to getting up, eating at seven or eight. Um, and like, so we'll just prolong that. We'll do it like once per week or even like once every other week. Um, you know, it, it sometimes it can become a regular thing that we keep in, or sometimes it can be a short term, like three, four week thing. Um, it just kind of depends from individual to individual. Um, you know, some, um, some fat loss clients, I will actually prolong the fast, um, on Sunday until like, let's say three, four o'clock. Um, so it becomes like a lower calorie day and we do get the benefit of some additional fasting. Okay. Yeah. So again, it's, it's application specific, right? I mean, it's each person, but so we're taking the general benefits. We're kind of taking the science and we're applying it. Yeah, because it almost seems now like in the industry, like the fasting is kind of getting a little bit more popular, but not so extreme. Mm-hmm. I was just uh, chatting with Georgie Fear and in her book, The Lean Habits. She was talking about, you know, maybe you should start focusing on maybe just three to four meals per day and space them out every four hours so you don't have to constantly be eating and worrying about food. And you still get a little bit of the benefit of the fasting by that fourth hour. Yep. And uh, I think the other one too is like, managing your hunger because sometimes you know you get that little like squirm in your stomach but like are you actually hungry or you know you smelt something down the street and you're like yeah i want to eat now yeah well you know conversely on that right i would say some people you know you could eat every hour on the hour if that suits you or some people like you said it's great to wake up and not even think about food till like one o'clock yeah so um you know it's it really just depends like on habits um uh, you know, I think that's, you know, again, what can you do sustainably long term? And then let's use effective scientific principles and build that into your lifestyle. I really think that's the way you create a successful diet. Yeah. Um, for the next question, and I kind of wanted to know what would your like prescription for this person's diet if they were like an endurance athlete, like say like a cyclist or something that, mm-hmm. you know, has a competition of like at least 200 kilometers over a weekend and they want to be able to fuel themselves so they don't like hit the wall or anything like that. So again, so first thing we're going to look at is, all right, well, what's your dietary history and what have you tried before? Right? Like that's, are you somebody that's uh, like, for instance, I had somebody recently do a Spartan race Mm -hmm. and while that's not at all on the same level as what you just described, it is pretty long, pretty like long duration. Right. And this guy, like, his fucking calories are like 1600 cause he's in that like reverse diet setting I'm talking about. Yeah. So like for me, I'm like, well, fuck dude, more like bigger dinner the night before. And you know, I had him basically bring gel packs to have every two to three hours. Um, like it was literally that simple because he's not like super dialed in. Um, you know, conversely, if we're talking like world-class athletes really like I would basically figure out in their training how fast they're burning through carbohydrates. Um, and like we could literally do tests, right? So every time they do like a distance run, I would actually encourage them to get to the point where they felt like blood sugar was getting a little bit low. Um, and we would monitor that every time that they are going out and we'll offset that, um, with carbohydrate ingestion. Um, the one thing that I think the biggest mistake I see and, and, you know, to generalize this application is people start trying to load carbohydrates at 24 hours out. Um, your loading window starts 48 hours out because glycogen synthesis and resynthesis happens on like a 24 to 36 hour window. So you may not be getting the full effect of your carbohydrates if you're only consuming them the day before, 
right? Because let's say like the carbs you're taking in at noon, two, three o'clock, they may not be fully synthesized until that same time the following day, at which point maybe you're finishing your race. Yeah, I think a lot of people fall victim to that because like, that's what they've heard other people do is like, oh, I yeah. got a carb load the night before. and Yeah, and, like, and that's not going to do shit. Yeah. Like, it's gonna, it'll make you feel good the day after the race or it might help recovery from the race, but it's not really going to give you the adequate amount of fuel. Yeah. What do you think about like fat loading for a long distance event or something like that? If it's purely aerobic, I like it. Because remember, like the only times you're going to be using fat as fuel is in that purely aerobic setting. So again, I deal mostly with CrossFitters. Um, I don't deal with very many purely aerobic athletes. Um, so I don't do it at all. In fact, when we get to um, really important times for the CrossFitters, be it like the regionals or the games, uh, a lot of times we are reducing dietary fat intake uh, in favor of getting them more carbohydrates. And that's actually done from a hormone perspective as well as a fuel perspective. Um, however, if it was, again, if it was purely aerobic, yeah, I'm a big fan of a fat load. I think it's great. Okay. Um, actually, I watched the um, the documentary on the CrossFit Games on Netflix. Uh-huh. I think it was like 2013 or 14 that they did. Yep. How does their diet look at like, because it was what, four days or three days back to back with like this mm-hmm. gruesome workouts. Like what would you... <laughs> prescribe them to be able to like hit it hard the next time that they're in and not like just crumble apart so the most overlooked piece by those guys and it sounds so crazy but remember that like crossfit's very like central nervous system demanding probably more so than any other sport like they're going max effort just shy of red line every time they're on the floor and so that's very sympathetic nervous system demanding um and if they're not getting that sympathetic to parasympathetic shift immediately after training, they're prolonging that cortisol response. And depending on how you've been training, what your nutrition was like coming into the games, you can blow through your cortisol really quickly and you can be fucked by day three, day four, day five. Um, So the biggest thing with them is what are you doing immediately post-workout? Getting in like a a high molecular weight carbohydrate shake. Um, A lot of them are in the three to one, four to one carb to protein ratio. Um, to give you an example, you know, last year, well, I still work with Travis Mayer, but he took 10th at the games last year. Um, and we were doing hundred grams of carbs and 25 grams of protein after every workout, um, going into the games, he was eating about 700 to 750 grams of carbs every day. Um, while we were at the games, we basically lived on protein carbs all day. And then we fat loaded each night, um, basically just to slow down the rapid digestion of the carbs because he was burning through them so quickly. Um, so we weren't trying to use fats for fuel. We were basically putting that in there just to slow that digestion down a little bit. Um, and we did it actually in the form of burgers and fries. Um, so, but that's how many calories, you know, we were trying to replace. I mean, these guys are doing three and four workouts a day. Um, and then when you look at the accumulation of fatigue and the calorie deficit over three to four days, it's crazy. Like it, you know, sometimes you have to have that. I'm not saying burgers and fries are healthy, but when we're at the games, health is out the window. That's well, like Michael Phelps and his uh, diet before any kind of Olympic Games. And I think I read an article where he was like eating a full pizza and just like lathering mayonnaise on it just to keep up with his calories. Yeah. Well, and then, I mean, you know, you look at his setting, right? And thermodynamics and being in a pool, it's even worse. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, that's when you're, I, I say this in my seminar all the time, you know, you got to draw a line, the continuum, right? And if you picture it on the left, far left end, it's health. And on the far right end, it's performance. And you got to figure out where do you sit in that continuum. Because if you're the best performing athlete in the world, I can assure you internally you're not the healthiest. Mm-hmm. And if you're the healthiest motherfucker in the world, 
I can assure you, you're not the best athlete in the world. Yeah. Right. So you got to figure out where do you want to sit in that continuum and what are you okay sacrificing? And so for, for most of my guys, we try to periodize that, right? So in performance times, it's purely performance. It gives zero fucks about health, right? Obviously I don't want you like really shitty blood work, but I'm willing to make some sacrifices coming out of that. We are going through a recovery phase where we are pro where we are prioritizing health, getting your body functioning as best as we can before we begin the off season training. Um, so, you know, I think there is a, you know, just like you have in training, a periodized model. I have a periodized model of nutrition for athletes as well. I've read that an article about actually like, I guess you could f- put it under like flexible dieting, but it's almost like if you had to change your diet the way that your training plan is where, you know, you build up for four weeks and you go for a recovery week. Like I've seen, I can't remember who wrote the article, but sometimes what he did with his clients was that, you know, for three months, I'm going to get you to eat really, really clean. And then on that Mm -hmm. fourth month, you know, eat whatever you want, but don't go pig out. Just don't worry about what you're eating. Just eat food as it is to kind of give your mental, like a little mental break. And then again, Mm -hmm. another three months, are you going to be really strict? And then a full month of just going with the flow yeah and so that's like i think that's becoming popularized just to be known as very simply a diet break yeah um and you know eric helms champions that quite a bit um alberto nunez as well um i i think it's a great idea i think mentally for a lot of people it's great um but again i'll go back to the concept of if you really need to shift your methods after only three months of doing something um are you really doing something that that's appropriate for you um, now I think the article you're alert, alluding to is involved in a body comp, uh, a bodybuilding competition mm-hmm. and that's a completely different animal, right? So I don't think that anybody that diets for a bodybuilding competition should expect to do that diet long-term. Um, but you know, uh, again, it's important for everybody listening to understand, okay, well, there's a, a completely different application. Um, I need to know who this article is written for. Yeah. Now, in the CrossFit world, like, the paleo diet is really huge. Like, what's your opinion on about that, if even if it's, <laughs> even if it's worthwhile? Um, I think it's worthwhile for people that want to live a really long time um, and for people with autoimmune disorders. Um, I do not think it has any merit or application in a performance sport. Um, in fact, I think it's the root cause of a lot of the shit that we're seeing in CrossFit now in terms of metabolic damages or, you know, metabolic adaptations, um, thyroid output being shit, um, adrenal dysfunction. I actually attribute that to the paleo diet. Yeah. Cause you see like any kind of CrossFit workout and it's like, it's grueling. It sucks. And I was like, how can they meet the demands of that much energy with just the paleo? Like it doesn't like make sense. Well, They're leveraging cortisol. Yeah. And that's it. Right. They're running purely on hormone. But when that hormone tank is done, well, guess what happens? Adrenal fatigue. And that's why you're starting to see so much adrenal fatigue in CrossFit because people are trying to live on not enough calories or not enough starch and do that for too long and you're, uh, you're, you're in trouble. <laughs> so do you believe in adrenal fatigue? Because there's some people that are like, oh, that's not researched enough. It's not actually a thing, blah, blah, because it's almost... You hear it more from naturopaths than like mm-hmm. actual medical doctors. Like, what's your take on adrenal fatigue? So I um, I don't believe that adrenal fatigue is medically accepted yet, like you said. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know in so like I went through like the FDN program and 
I know that like what you can test in terms of lab work is you can look at like a DHEA to cortisol ratio um, and you can tell the stage of adrenal dysfunction that somebody is in. Um, so whether you want to call it adrenal fatigue, whether you want to call it adrenal dysfunction, or whether you want to look at the values, um, you know, relative to the ratio of DHA to cortisol, I really don't give a fuck what you want to call it. Um, but I do believe there is something measurable that you can test that can tell you the state, um, of cortisol function, um, which is directly correlated to adrenal function. Yeah. I like absolutely hate the people that are like, Oh, if it's not research enough, then that's, it doesn't even exist to me. It's like, right. You got to be a little bit more open. Like I'm, I'm open to anything and I'm always willing to try whatever's out there. And I kind of just look at it as if you're getting more information about yourself and maybe take one or two things from it and it might actually improve your life. Right. Well, I mean, it's like what, you know, we could sit here and say like low testosterone is like, I, I think that like medically it's termed as like hypogonadism, right? Mm-hmm. Like, well, what if we didn't call it hypogonadism? What if we're like, that's not medically accepted? Yeah. But yet we can go look at the lab value and tell you that your free testosterone and total testosterone are low, right? Yeah. So whether you want to fucking call a lab value a name or whether you just want to call it a lab value, it doesn't matter. Like it's semantics to me. But the lab values have merit and I think there's information that can be had from reading lab values. Um, you know, and I, I just, I don't know why the medical world's so up in arms about it. Yeah, it's tough because like I kind of want to like see a world where there's you know there's medical doctors and naturopathic doctors actually working together and like i know one that like after talking to him for a couple hours he every time he gets a new patient he'll actually contact directly to their md doctor in hopes that they could work together he's like it's such a small percentage of them actually like yeah sure let's do it it'll be a good idea so i don't know if it's like in their culture or something that you know you're a top dog and no one like can touch you or something. Yeah, no, I, uh, I agree. I think it's, um, it's really interesting, man. I mean, I, I tend to, you know, just, I I think naturopaths tend to be a little more open-minded. Um, so I tend to have better conversations with them, but you know, again, I I think in every profession and every walk of life and what we do and in this industry, I think that we all need to be open-minded and, you know, I mean, 10, 10, 11 years ago, somebody could have told Lane he was fucking crazy for, you know, macros and flexible dieting. And here we are 11 years later, and it's like the whole craze in the dieting industry right now. So, you know, I think that uh, just because uh, uh, somebody tells you you're wrong doesn't mean that you are. And I think that it's, you know, it's the, the basis for us moving forward as a society. And I think also like people's careers like eventually evolve because now, what I've been noticing is that when people are deciding whether or not to go to med school or naturopathic school, they're actually taking the time to research. Whereas like maybe 10 years ago, you know, people are like, Oh, if I'm going to med school, I'm going to med school. I'm not thinking about anything else. So now you're getting more educated, you know, kids going into naturopathic medicine because they chose to, because they looked into it and said, Hey, I think this is a good idea. Right. Well, and in the U S like the healthcare system and the way insurance reimburses right now, like it's actually like you're, you're actually seeing record lows in terms of enrollment in med schools because of how they're making money. Um, and it's just, uh, they're making far less money than they ever have. And a lot of that is relative to, you know, the way, like I said, insurance reimburses and, and how hard that's becoming. Um, so yeah, it's um, it's interesting, man. I mean, I'm I'm very big on like generations carrying over to the next generations, and like I mentioned, I think that 
you know, when you look at paleo and its popularization in CrossFit, it was like 2007, 2008. Mm -hmm. And here we are, you know, what, 2016, so eight years later. Um, and, and we're now paying the price for what that generation laid the foundation of. So I'm, you know, if I had to guess, I think seven to eight years from now, you're going to see some really good, high quality functioning athletes. Um, because I think that the nutrition principles that are being promoted right now are fantastic. Yeah. Uh, so last question, what yeah. is like your next big project speaking engagements or, and where can people find you online and yeah, websites so- and stuff like that? First things um, people can find me is um, jasonphillipsnutrition.com, um, and that's Phillips with two L's. Um, speaking engagements, I am in Vero Beach tomorrow, um, and let's see, Palm Beach on Sunday. Um, I'm in Chicago at O'Hare CrossFit on September 24th. I'm speaking at the Cascade Classic on the 25th, which is in Seattle. I believe I'm in Omaha the following weekend. I believe I'm in Dallas the following weekend. Um, but all those dates are going to be listed on my website. Um, I believe I'm pretty booked through October. Uh, and then November, December are pretty low. And then I think that you know January is obviously a huge time. Um, might pop over to the UK in November. Um, if you're not in an area um, and you can't make it to one of my seminars, I do have one that I videoed for sale on the website as well. Um, that's gotten really good reviews as well. So I would encourage you to check that out. Um, and then I'm sorry, you asked one more question and I feel like I completely just spaced on it. Um, projects. If you oh, have, next yeah. big, next big project. Yeah. So I just launched a company called mission six. Um, you know, as we're talking about this right now, we actually just released the first major video in, um, in the company today. And it's actually showing the third fittest woman in the world. Um, and her journey, um, or her quote-unquote mission to win the CrossFit Games in 2017. So um, I can't spill the beans on what the company is right now. Um, it's pretty secret. It's locked up, but um, I'm pretty excited about it. I can tell you that you, you know, the the people that are involved and the athletes that are involved, um, the world will have unprecedented access to them um, because of the way that we're approaching this project. So I'm very, very excited about that. I just got back from Iceland earlier this week. Um, and spending time with Sarah. So, um, yeah, that's, that's the big project right now. Um, it's going to change the game in, in a few aspects in CrossFit. So I'm um, pretty pumped about that. That's awesome. And you sound super busy. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, it's, uh, it's a grind, man. I mean, yeah. you know what? If, uh, if, if Gary Vaynerchuk can travel like he does, man, I can, I can work with my, uh, my crazy schedule. So it's, you know, it's, it's one of those things, man, like somebody asked me the other day, like, doesn't it get tiring to travel like all the time? And it's like, I guess it would if like everywhere I went, I didn't get to like interact with people and truly create change. Like I, like I said in the beginning, like I'm so, I'm so massively passionate about creating that change that it's like, it's a labor of love and sure I'm human. Don't get me wrong. Like I get tired, you know, like I, I just took the red eye last night and of course I was tired. Um, but there's something super energizing about getting in a conversation with something you love and just being able to put that out there. Oh, I totally get it. Like after I do these podcast interviews, I'm like, Oh man, what am I, what can I do next? Like yeah. you, you just, it yeah. gets addictive. And then, you know, I can easily work every day for like 14, 15 hours. And I'm like, geez, I maybe should stop. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, no, I, I agree, man. I mean, like I'm like the exact same way, you know, on, on like seminar days, like we'll go six, seven hours. And then it's like, it, you know, at the end of the day, I'm just like so fired up. I'm like, man, like I gotta go do more. I gotta go talk to more people. Yeah. So yeah, it's fun. Perfect. I just want to thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy, uh, life to actually chat with us. And no, uh, man, my pleasure. All right, you guys, that's going to wrap up this episode. Hopefully you enjoyed it as much as I did because re-listening to it, it just brought back a lot of good memories of being super nervous speaking to these, you know, titans of the industry. And now I just can't even shut myself up when I talk to somebody. But um, I really hope you guys have been enjoying these kind of throwback episodes to my first year of podcasting because a lot of the information is still valid today and you know, it's a chance for you to also check out other people in the industry that are doing great things. And I highly respect both Jason and Georgie because they are doing just amazing things. You should definitely check them out. Um, I also want to give a shout out to all the people have been supporting my podcast because we surpassed, you know, 30,000 listens. Like that's freaking amazing. Thank you so much for supporting me. Um, Thank you for all my new listeners. Thank you for all my listeners from day one. And thank you for all the people who bought my ebook. If you haven't done so already, like hit the show notes and hit that link to get my book. The book is selling not only in Canada and the US, but all over Europe, um, Algeria for some reason. And it's just amazing to see my book being sold internationally. So thank you, thank you, thank you to everyone who purchased and supported this show. Again, I said this a thousand times. I don't have any ads on my show. I don't get paid at all for these episodes, for my time or anything like that. I just want to give out the best information out there. And all I ask in return is to like share this podcast with your friends and family. I say that at the end of every episode. But on top of that, if I have, you know, a new project like my ebook, like purchase my ebook to support the show. If I come up with a t-shirt, like buy the t-shirt to support the show, like every little bit helps. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you guys. You guys are all amazing until next time.